You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Janet Wright, Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. For patients diagnosed with aortic valve stenosis, corrective surgery is advised and is often extremely safe and effective. But there are some patients with advanced disease who remain unrecognized. In what ways can we improve our detection of these patients whose symptoms may not be immediately identified when taking a clinical history? Our guest today is Dr. Arvind Agnihotri, Assistant Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School and the Director of Cardiac Quality Assessment and Improvement for the Partners Healthcare System in Boston. Welcome, Dr. Agnihotri. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you to describe for our audience how a patient with advanced aortic stenosis might present in the office. What should ears and eyes be perked up to look for? Aortic stenosis is really the end result of aortic sclerosis, which is a very common process that develops in the elderly population. And divide up our patients into those who have symptomatic and asymptomatic aortic stenosis. The asymptomatic patient with aortic stenosis, the first thing that a clinician might find is a murmur. There's a classic murmur for aortic stenosis, which I'm sure most of the listeners are familiar with. As aortic stenosis progresses, there are the three classic symptoms of aortic stenosis that we all know about, angina, syncope, and heart failure. Some of the symptoms, though, may be subtle and need to be asked about if somebody's going to appreciate them. And those symptoms include a decrease in exercise tolerance, some sort of exertional test discomfort, a dyspnea that may be subtle, and lightheadedness. And I say that I mention these soft symptoms because in a population of people, particularly you see people in their 70s or 80s, these can often be discounted. We expect people as they get older to have less exercise tolerance or maybe to be a little short of breath when walking or maybe be a little lightheaded. So I think that in the combination of a diagnosis or suspicion of aortic stenosis and some of these soft symptoms ought to lead to additional diagnostic testing. What is clear from studies of the natural history of this disease, and before the 1960s we had no good therapy, so we have a lot of information on what happens without surgical therapy, The average survival after the onset of symptoms is two to three years. And so the development of symptoms in a patient with aortic stenosis generally indicates that we should do something about it. There's evolving evidence that in low-risk patients, maybe we ought to intervene even before they develop significant symptoms to prevent the negative effects of progressive left ventricular hypertrophy. So I guess I would say for the primary care doctor and the cardiologist that suspicion of this problem and its sequelae could lead to a targeted interview with the patient and then may lead to additional diagnostic testing. And that diagnostic testing usually includes, or in fact, the first test is usually an echocardiogram, correct? Correct. Well, you know, in many ways, the echocardiogram, and tease the trainees about it, has become the new stethoscope for many of the academic medical centers. But an echocardiogram for this problem is essential. It's a non-invasive test. It can give us significant information about valve disease. In addition to diagnosing the morphology of the aortic valve, we can get some estimates about degree of aortic stenosis, both in terms of the valve area and in terms of the gradients generated across the valve. Just to remind our listeners, you know, the valve area that we think to be severe for aortic stenosis would be less than a centimeter squared. If it's greater than 1.5 centimeters squared, that's really mild aortic stenosis. 
the gradients generally, but not always, correspond with degree of stenosis that we find by valvaria. And I'll just mention an exception or two. Generally, with a good ventricle, a ventricle that's able to pump with a reasonable velocity, the tighter your valve gets, there'll be a corresponding increase in the gradient that is the drop of pressure across this narrowed orifice. As the ventricle begins to fail, however, those gradients begin to drop simply because the ventricle doesn't generate as much force through that valve. So there is a category of people with low gradient aortic stenosis, and occasionally they need some provocative testing to demonstrate adequate gradients. But certainly, Dr. Wright, you're correct that echocardiography would be the first sort of non-traditional sort of test after one thought about this problem. And if uh, severe or even moderately severe aortic stenosis is discovered at that point, that would usually be a trigger for consultation with a cardiologist. And at that point, consideration can be given to definitive measurement of that valve gradient through cardiac catheterization. That's the path for most patients with this degree of disease, correct? I think that's correct. There's probably some regional differences or some local differences in the way that primary care doctors and cardiologists interact on some of these levels. I certainly know many primary care doctors who are very comfortable kind of taking the ball a bit further before referring to cardiologists and others who would prefer to have a cardiology consultation early. The need for a cardiac catheterization, I would say, with a well-documented echocardiographic evidence of severe aortic stenosis with high gradient, we don't need to cross all those valves with a catheter. There's sometimes some issues with doing that, but we do need to do if we're going to consider intervention is to have a look at the coronary blood vessels as well because there's a high incidence of concomitant significant coronary disease with aortic stenosis. Which you would certainly want to treat at the same time as the aortic valve disease, particularly in a surgical treatment, or at least plan for treatment if a staged procedure is necessary. Absolutely. We would have to have that information before we would consider surgery. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright. Our guest today is Dr. Arvin Agnihotri, Assistant Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School. We're discussing treatments for aortic valve disease. I want to put a pitch in here for additional resource material, and that that's, uh, exists in the ACC AHA guidelines for valvular heart disease, which were just updated a year or so ago. And there's also guidance in the form of appropriateness criteria for echocardiography. Dr. Agnihotri, perhaps you could walk us through a patient's experience with percutaneous valve replacement, sort of take us through the decision-making process and the procedure and, and the early post-operative period. Sure. As we discussed earlier, current application of percutaneous technology in the United States is confined to an FDA-approved trial. And this trial is designed to look at very high-risk patients and to see if they have a benefit in terms of traditional therapies, be it surgery or medical therapy, with this new technology. Because it's a high-risk population, we've been getting people with really complex medical conditions in whom we can document quantitatively an estimated mortality in the operating room in the range of 15%. Let me give you an example. The first patient that we did at Mass General several months ago was an 88-year-old man. He had critical aortic stenosis and was known to have that. He had coronary disease. He had ischemic cardiomyopathy with an EF of 28% and class 3 failure symptoms. He had previously had a bypass operation in 1992. He was diabetic. He had chronic renal insufficiency with an elevated creatinine hyperlipidemia, hypertension, proximal atrial fibrillation, multiple hospitalizations for decompensated congestive failure. So if you could imagine this 88-year-old gentleman with this history, 
you can see why surgeons would either be reluctant to operate on them or, frankly, doctors would be reluctant to refer them for surgery. Having said that, mentally he was intact. He had been in and out of the hospital with heart failure, and there was really, it was becoming clear that there was little more medical optimization that would help that. And we think that this kind of patient can be treated with this new technology in a way that's very exciting and very new. This patient, we did some additional testing, including getting a very detailed CT scan going all the way from the neck down to the pelvis to really study his vasculature. That enabled us to do some 3D reconstructions to confirm that the valve that we wanted to put in would fit comfortably through the blood vessels without having a substantial risk of dislodging any atheroma or causing any animal injury. We brought him to the operating room. We did a cut down on his right groin, accessed his femoral artery, and then working with our interventional cardiology colleagues, Dr. Palacios and I threaded a wire up through his diseased valve. We started by ballooning the valve open in a procedure that's been around for a while called the balloon valvoplasty. And that enabled us then to bring this new valve down inside the old valve and inflating a balloon inside the stent and valve construct, deploy the new valve in position. We documented that the valve seemed to be working well in the procedural area by both transesophageal echocardiography and by completion aortography. And indeed, the patient's gradients were negligible at the end of the procedure, and he had just trace trivial aortic insufficiency around the construct. Uh, We were able to send him home in three days, and he had simply an incision on his groin, uh, no chest incision. He was extubated a few hours after the procedure and symptomatically improved. So this is a patient that I think, under the best-case scenario, would have had a tough time with our traditional therapy in the sense that we would have had to do a reoperation in a chest on someone with significant comorbid conditions. And although chances were 8 or 9 out of 10 that we would have gotten him through, I think it would be fair to say it would take him a couple of months to recover from that and that he was at some risk for having complications. Whether or not this turns out to be an exception or the rule, we need to do the studies. We need to collect the information. We need to randomize patients like this to various treatment arms And I hope that we'll be able to come back at the end of it and say, you know, for these patients, we have something that's better than what we've been doing. Talk to us about the evaluation of this man's coronary disease prior to your decision to do the valve replacement. And then more broadly, in patients that have concomitant coronary disease but might be candidates for the percutaneous valve, how how do you approach them? Well, we'll have to talk about it within the context of the study for the time being. This gentleman had a previous bypass operation, and his coronary circulation was studied in preparation for this study. As I mentioned to you, he had ischemic cardiomyopathy with a low ejection fraction. However, by catheterization, his bypass grafts were felt to be adequate. By that, I mean they weren't perfect. There was a stent and an old vein graft. He had a mammary graft that was functioning well. There was an area of his heart that we thought was, by studies, did not need another graft. So in our analysis of him, coronary disease, he was not having symptoms of coronary ischemia and this was isolated aortic valve disease. It can be a complicated decision tree because if we do do an open surgery on some of these patients, just because of the technical aspects of the surgery, we will occasionally do additional bypass grafts, particularly when we have to open the aorta near the proximal sites for previous grafts. But in this patient, I think that the message is that he had his coronary anatomy studied by our cardiologist and he did not need additional bypasses. The other question you asked is what do we do if they do need something else done to the coronary circulation. And then I think we've looked at this on a patient-by-patient level. 
if somebody has multivessel coronary disease and aortic stenosis, uh, unless there's a real reason, I think they should have surgery. And by a real reason, I mean if they're really at a, a high-risk situation. The complexity of trying to prepare that patient for this study by doing stenting to their coronary circulation is that it's a randomized study. And I think the idea of doing stenting in order to get someone randomized for a percutaneous mm-hmm. valve or open surgery is fraught with a difficulty that we may end up with a patient randomized to surgery who's been stented previously and could have had the bypasses at the time of the aortic valve replacement. We've been learning more about treatments for aortic valve disease today with Dr. Arvind Agnihotri. Dr. Agnihotri, thank you so much for being our guest today. A real pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast to this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.